going to start welcoming people to the uh, to the program today. Um, we'll start. We'll drag our feet a little bit because we have a lot of people joining. I think we have about 580 signed up in advance, so uh, we'll give them a give them a chance. I uh, uh, hope some of you were here for the dialogue that George Rutherford and I had a, a while ago um, in the era of COVID. It's any time ago is like an eternity. Um, things change so fast, but, uh, but welcome back if you were here before. Uh, if not, uh, welcome to this program. This is a program of the International Antiviral Society USA, um, and we are happy to be uh, today talking with George Rutherford. George Rutherford is a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics uh, at the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, George is a pediatric ID person. Uh, so for those of us that uh, come to this uh, uh, dialogue with an interest in, in HIV and, and infectious disease, uh, uh, he, bring, he brings that perspective to, uh, to this work um, and has been very uh, active, uh, just amazingly active in responding to the, to the COVID epidemic here in San Francisco, uh, really helping establish um, uh, case contact uh, uh, tracing, uh, uh, helping uh, train and staff thousands of people that are, that are doing that work. So it's, he, he really knows what he's uh, talking about. Um, we will have about 40 minutes uh, for, a, uh, for a conversation that I'll moderate with George. Um, during that time, uh, you can put in questions as they as they come to you uh, in the Q and A function on the on the Zoom screen. Uh, our staff will be looking at those, and uh, when it comes time, uh, last 20 minutes or so of the program, uh, they'll toss me those, uh, uh, and I'll um, I'll then uh, again ask uh, ask the questions uh, to George uh, uh, to respond. Um, this is not a CME program, uh, but it is available. Um, and uh, just kind of fair warning, as you all know, I think the, the information about COVID changes so fast that uh, while it will be posted, I think uh, it's likely that we'll come back to this and at some other time. I'm not sure how many times we can get George to, uh, to join us, but uh, as, as long as he keeps saying yes, we'll keep asking him back. Um, we will. We might have some polling uh, questions during during the program, um, but uh, I don't think we have any planned right now. Uh, but we can. We we have that capability, and if we do that, we'll uh, uh, we'll kind of give you some warning. So, George, welcome back. Thanks, Paul. Yep. Um, yeah. So, just talk a little bit about yourself and what it feels like to have been trained as an infectious disease epidemiologist and then find yourself tossed into, into this. Uh, how's yeah, it, well, how's so, it? I feel, I feel somewhat prepared. Yeah. <laughs> I say, given my, as opposed to a lot of other people. Um, I, uh, so I did, I did peds and um, was a fourth year chief resident running ICU. So perfect reason, perfect preparation, you know, yeah learning how to put Swan-Gans catheters into, you know, three kilogram babies, you know, perfect preparation for this. Uh, then I went to CDC, and by that I mean the Centers for Disease Control and not the California Department of Corrections, lest there be, we'll talk about <laughs> correctional health here in a second. It's just like, right. there's no confusion there. I was an EIS officer, an Epidemic Intelligence Service officer, and was in Atlanta, New York, and got in on, very, on the very early days of the AIDS epidemic. I was transferred by CDC to San Francisco in 1985, where I met Paul and, and Don Abrams yeah, and Connie yeah. Wofsey. And um, so I've, you know, I've been on that, uh, you know, I've been on that uh, epidemic for pretty much for my, most of my career. Uh, but I also uh, sort of stepped out of AIDS for about five years and was a chief of infectious disease for the state of California and the state health officer. There's a lot, pretty broad view of public health from that. And, um, you know, and I've also worked on Ebola and tuberculosis and chlamydia and coccidioidomycosis and a variety of other uh, diseases, uh, the uh, 2009 swine flu. Um, but this is obviously the 
I mean, I, 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 I don't know what to say when people say, oh, this is the biggest epidemic we've had. I think HIV is a bigger epidemic, frankly, in terms of mortality. And I have to keep, people, keep reminding people right, of that. Right. But, it, but it has a qualitatively different feel to it, as yeah, you, yeah. As you yeah. know, Paul. You don't we get all it. know. Right, right. You don't get it walking down the street or, so, the, you know, market. Yeah. So the, I mean, we can start anywhere, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts just about where we stand uh, in the epidemic. We hear of, you know, these hot spots in the, at the first part of the epidemic in this country, New York and New Jersey. Um, yeah. Now they're, they seem to be yeah. very quiet. Um, and then we've had that raging inferno in, in the South and Southwest. Um, just what's your what's your thought about how things stand? Are we are we entering the fall lull season or speculate? You you wish. I wish. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you wish. We're uh, we've gone through the we're starting down the downslope of the second wave of the epidemic. These aren't you know true waves in this in the sense that it returned to baseline, but you know you can really see a second wave that was involved the you know, the whole of the South and Southeastern United States with the various hotspots moving around from Atlanta to Miami, back to New Orleans, to Houston, to Brownsville, and every place in between. Um, and that's been, they've just been, you know, pounded by that. Uh, it's, you know, it's, I think Houston probably did get up to the levels of New York City for a while in terms of, of having to triage and ICU availability and you know, just sort of totally, you know, brutal uh, kind of impact on the on the medical right. care system. Here in the West, it's been a very different story. It's been very, even though we're really in a second wave now too, and we may have turned the corner a little hard considering that 300,000 cases got lost out of the state registration system a couple of weeks ago. But I think we're beyond that. And we can say that uh, we've turned the corner as a state for California, I'm less clear on what's happening in Oregon and Washington now, uh, but in the Bay Area, maybe, maybe not turn the corner. But that's a disease, it's become a disease that's very much a, a, a predominantly an infection among in the Latinx community. And what we've seen is it move out from the, from the cities and basically highly dense, densely populated um, parts of the city. So in San Francisco, in the Mission District in Los Angeles and East Los Angeles, where there are a lot of people living multi-generational uh, families in, in single houses or even in apartments. It's moved from there, it's moved into the agricultural lands. And you can see it really extends all the way from the Imperial Valley through, um, through Northern Washington, uh, all through the choice agricultural areas going up. And that's because we have lar a largely Latino workforce that's there working in the, uh, working in the fields. And I, I've tried to get data from British Columbia to see whether it extends into there. Uh, they don't they don't categorize people like we do. They're interested in First Nations, and that's about it. Um, but it's it uh, I would wouldn't be surprised at all. But it's it's really a Latino disease now uh, in the in the West with all sorts of additional unhelpful things from fraternity parties and bars and clubs that stay open too late, and and you know big parties in Los Angeles and, you know, all that stuff that, that just adds cases on top of it. But the base is, um, is, is predominantly Latino. And the explanation for New York and why it is yeah. so quiet there, any, any thoughts? Well, I mean, everybody's scared. It's there are people who wear masks. At least that's my impression um, that people are really are, are, are much more conscious of it uh, than they are in other parts of the, of the country. Uh, and are really taking precautions and are really treading lightly. There is this, there is something that came out this week about herd, is there a herd immunity? Is there modeled herd immunity in parts of Brooklyn and, and Manhattan and the Bronx? You know, I, I, I find it pretty hard to believe that you can get to herd immunity at, at 50%. That would mean the R naught would have to be two. Uh, and we know it's somewhere around three and a half or uh, maybe even up to four in certain places. The, the herd immunity is, is the R naught minus one divided by R naught. So right, right. two minus one divided by two, that would be a half. Um, plus we have all sorts of other things that would say that that's absurd to think that it's that low. Um, San Quentin State Prison here is topping out at around 70%. Uh, some ships have topped out at 90%. 
Um, now, those aren't, you know, that's not single family dwellings in suburbia, obviously, uh, but it would suggest that you need a lot more uh, infection to get, to get to herd immunity. And there are some slums in, in Mumbai, again, not single family dwellings in the suburbs. Uh, that are topping out at around 60%. So I think you're probably looking at 60 to 70% for uh, for herd immunity, just based on what we've seen. And it's not, that stuff's so behavioral too, because it's about exposure and who's going to put themselves at risk. It's, it's really going to be different in different places. But you know, as, to, as to whether that, as to why that's, as, as to if that's a reason that, that things have gone down in New York, I, you know, maybe a little bit in some places, but I, I don't, I really don't think so. I think it's really behavioral. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I would assume uh, that the whole topic of herd immunity relates to questions of uh, post recovery immunity, uh, which relates potentially to vaccine status. Do you want to talk about, um, I know it's a big topic, but uh, the evidence that somebody who has recovered um, is or is not safe from this? Best article of the week, of yeah. course, in Med Archive. Uh, and it's from Seattle. Uh, 122 people uh, uh, were uh, crewmen on a U.S. fishing vessel. Uh, Pre-departure, there were 120 that were screened. Uh, th and uh, nobody, was in nobody was in fact, they were screened for antibody as well. Uh, three people had neutralizing antibody. They went to sea at an attack rate of 90%. And the three people with that, who had pre-existing neutralizing antibody got zero disease, did not develop, were not NP positive, NP swab positive, and, and had no symptoms at all. I, I think that, uh, you know, there's a real kind of clear example of of you know of, of neutralizing antibody being uh, being protective. Now they would have had to have gotten it in the last first case in Washington State was in late January. They would have had to have gotten it in the last um, six six and a half months. But still, I mean, I think that's pretty compelling uh, evidence. Um, the other thing is there's some uh, a large study that came from uh, from Shanghai that titered people's neutralizing antibody. Uh, titers and they said that some and I'm not going to get the numbers right, but about about a uh, say 13 percent, 14 percent, something like that, had high titers and they they had it stratified into four levels, um, and, and something like 25 percent had very low or completely absent titers. So, you know, it's it's the fact that you get it. It sort of depends on on what happens with your immune response or a lot of people, there's at least 10 out of this cohort in, in, in China and I can't remember the N here, but it's a hundred and something that had no, um, no antibody response at all. Uh, so that's, I think a sobering thought before we let everybody go out and get infected. And we've heard some discussion recently about um, comparisons of, of the antibody uh, uh, part of the immune system versus cellular immunity. Um, HIV docs often think about HIV docs often think about cellular immunity. Um, do we, we don't do any testing for that though, do we? Yeah, I mean you can do. It's complicated. You can do it. It's a, it's a for research purposes. There is an emerging literature on cellular immunity. I don't know it very well, Paul. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, it would not surprise me if there was some degree of cellular immunity. Uh, with this, but I, I, I still don't, you know, I, I think that's a big stretch to say, well, everybody in New York has cellular immunity because they got infected and therefore they're all immune and therefore they don't have to worry about anything. I think that's a major stretch to, yeah, to yeah, go yeah. that far. Anything, um, I, I wanted to talk about a couple topics that I'm sure people are going to be uh, interested in. Schools opening, I want to talk about yeah. uh, the flu season and, and what we're going to do. Um, yeah. But, but maybe just talk a little bit, give us an update about uh, testing and, and where we stand. We've heard about very rapid tests. We've heard of tests that are so rapid that people are hiring testers to come to their parties and test people when they, when they come in. Um, craziness. People don't have enough to do, right? right. You know? um, testing's all over the, all over the map. Uh, I think we're starting to recover our capacity um, and there are a number of test systems uh, that are available uh, to do both to do molecular tests 
to do antigen detection as, and to do antibody tests. So first of all, I take for, you know, unless you're somebody like me who wants to do seroepidemiology, I just take antibody tests and set them aside, right? We may at one point in time, if it turns out that there's a, some kind of um, antibody, uh, antibody dependent uh, antibody enhancement um, with the vaccine, we may want to screen, like with, we get with dengue, for instance, right. we may want to uh, screen for, uh, for antibodies for prior to vaccination, but that's, that's science fiction right now. So I wouldn't worry about that. So the two tests are antigen and, and molecular tests. The molecular tests uh, are, uh, you can, we're, we're now down to um, having the uh, FDA uh, give approval emergency use authorization for uh, salivary tests. And I'm not talking oral swabs, I'm talking about spitting into a cup. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, we're also, um, uh, either oral swabs, they're nasal swabs, they're self-administered nasal swabs, they're dry nasal swabs, they're the old NP swabs. Uh, which are extremely unpleasant, um, you know, and, and, but it's all going to, most of that stuff's going to, going to hinge back to PCR technology. Antigen technology is there and we can measure antigen as well, which comes up kind of with the, with, uh, uh, with the RNA uh, that's shed when you're PCR right. positive, but it's not very sensitive. It's on the order of about, of about 50% sensitivity. But the important thing is, but, but wait, there's yeah. <laughs> The important thing is, is that I think we're really getting a much better feel for what the real infectious period is and how infectious you are when people are getting infected. And this is from super spreader. And that it might be and, quite short, right? Yeah, like three days. Yeah. So we know that you turn, you can turn PCR positive two days before symptom. So let's just talk about symptoms, yeah, right? Yeah. And forget, forget asymptomatic infection for a, for a bit. But if you're uh, if you do, if you do develop symptoms, you start to shed RNA a couple of days, 48 hours before symptom onset, and then we'll shed it for some long period of time afterwards. We've done this, the studies have been done to look at recovery of viable virus uh, as a function of duration from from uh, symptom onset, and that period's about eight days, but it it drops off very, pretty rapidly. Um, and what appears to be happening is that you have peak viremia, not viremia, but peak viral shedding um, on days four, five, and six, maybe seven. That it's a really tight period of time and people have a lot of virus when that's going on. We're talking like 10 to the seventh particles. Um, and so, the, the, so, the, so as we rethink this, one of the things that um, a guy at Harvard, Michael Minas, talks about is that it doesn't matter how good the test is, right? We, we can tolerate poor sensitivity as long as we do it, do it frequently enough because what you're trying to do is not catch the, you know, this distal trickling little bit right, of right, right. RNA that's being shed, but you want people who are, who are really acutely infectious. And it doesn't matter how bad the test is, they're gonna, they're, they're gonna pick that up. Those are cycle times of like 15, 16, 17, as opposed to this, trailing thing which are all our all our sta laboratory standards are, are are geared for which is like 39 or 40 cycle times right so we want we want like big disease you know right at, at that point in time because that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck from isolating people right so there's kind of a it's the testing stuff is paradigms twisting a little bit uh from you know having high sensitive highly sensitive highly specific tests to having Tests that you can get get easily or cheap to run, uh, and as and but that you can do with with some frequency. So I can't remember if it's baseball or basketball. One of them does them daily, and the other does every other day. Um, but those that's the kind of thinking that they have, not for antigen tests, but for uh, but for uh, uh, molecular tests using things like LAMP as an example. Um, so the you know so that's the kind of paradigm we're stepping into which is frequent, uh, you know, which is trying to get as frequent testing as possible. And what we're trying to get, you know, what's the ideal test? It's like a pregnancy test, right? Home pregnancy test. It's sensitive enough, enough, right? It's uh, cheap and you can do a point of, point of care. And in fact, you can do it yourself. Yeah. Right? That's, that's the ideal here. And what we're hearing now is sat, you can sacrifice sensitivity because you're really only interested in the period of time when people have lots of virus. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Well, take that um, um, 
I, I know you've thought a lot about schools. Um, so take that discussion in terms of, I mean, I know there's a lot to say um, in terms of our, how, in, how infected, infectious are kids at what ages and all, all of that, which tests you're using. How do you see um, this moving forward? Because obviously there's a huge pressure to get schools open if we could possibly do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and there's a huge pressure not to open them until you're sure they're 100% safe. I mean, it's really collision of, of, of different ideas. Um, so you have to forgive me. I gave grand rounds this morning on, on school reopening. So this is all sitting in the front of my brain. So I'll, I'll just... I'll, I know. That's why, yeah. that's why I thought you were probably pretty well prepared for it. Yeah, finally prepared or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this, to start with is that children don't get infected as often as adults. That's, that's fact one, right? Why that doesn't happen, there's, a, there's some physiology to it that they have fewer, fewer, recept, fewer ACE2 receptors. They have about half as much as, uh, as uh, young adults. Uh, and so the idea would be if they have fewer ACE receptors, they're going to get fewer, fewer virus, less viral replication. But then there's a whole countervening art, article, I'm sorry, a whole countervailing argument from some studies done in Chicago that said that children, in fact, have higher viral loads uh, than, um, than, than adults. Now, that was done in symptomatic children. It was done on a machine, which I am, uh, have been told is not the right machine to do that kind of study on. And there's a study from Germany that says exactly the opposite on the right kind of machine. Um, so, so I think we're, that's a sort of, you know, one of these kind of scientific questions that's, that, that uh, we're going to need a tiebreaker or two okay. to, to resolve that. But the observation is that children don't get infected very often. And from a variety of household studies done all over the world, don't infect other people very easily, including other children. Now, there's a whole school of thought that says the reason children don't infect adults is because they're short. And when they sneeze and cough, it goes into the, you know, the thighs of your right, blue right. or, you know, your abdomen. Um, but that seems like a little overly facile, um, facile uh, argument to me. But, uh, but the, the observation is they just don't get infected. Now, having said that, and oh, by the way, this, for this receptors, the cut point is 10 years of age. Um, there are, uh, there are numerous reports of, of uh, infections, in, of outbreaks in middle schools and high schools. Um, there, uh, and from, from France, from uh, Australia, from uh, Israel, uh, those are the ones we, we look at. And then we can look here, in Cal look, at, look here in our own backyard, not California, but through the South, there are these two high schools in Georgia that, had to op that opened and everybody was jammed in the halls and the kid took the picture and got kicked yeah. out of school yeah. for a couple of days and should probably win the Pulitzer Prize for photography or something. Right. But the, uh, um, that's, that, that had nine, they had nine case cases in the first three days and then had to close. Uh, another one in, in Cherokee County, uh, which is another Atlanta suburb, similar uh, kinds of things. So I'm not at all surprised about that. Um, the University of North Carolina, uh, not uh, having a particularly good day, uh, had 135, I think that's the right number, 135 cases in the, in the first few days of, of class and had to close the university, send everybody home. Here, closer to home, Stanford and Cal have both said, oh, we're just, we're just not going to deal with this, right? Everybody go home for the first semester or quarter, depending on which system you're on. So that's, that's kind of where we are with, with institutions of higher education. They're just not going to be able to, I don't, I don't think they're going to be able to pull it off. Now, if you could get frequent testing and you had a place to isolate people and you had students who followed the rules, oh, yeah, okay then you might be able to pull it off. And I've been talking to Caltech of all places about this. And I think they think, you know, you know maybe you can get them to maybe, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe. So we'll just have to see. Um, and uh, I think as far as I'm concerned, well, just to start with in California, 90% um, of the population lives in counties that are being monitored, monitored by the state. And part of being monitored by the state means you can't reopen schools to in-person education. Now that creates huge, huge disadvantages to children who are on school lunch programs or breakfast programs. 
it creates huge disadvantages for um, for special education uh, uh, children with special education needs, uh, especially physical handicaps. Um, it creates a lot of problems, right? But um, that's the you know that's the decision that the governor and the governor's office has made. There is, however, a waiver possibility uh, for elementary schools only, and that's the that's the, all the business about the ACE receptors and the observations that we just don't see very many. We haven't seen any outbreaks in, in schools. So, so you, you had mentioned 10 years old is sort of a, a cut yeah. point of some sort. So do you think it's safer to open uh, young elementary grade? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it's safer. Yeah. Now, I'm sure there's somebody out there who's read the MMWR about the Georgia summer camp, uh, uh, yep. sleepover camp. Uh, where they managed to get an attack rate of 61% among six to 11 year old kids at this camp. Basically, it was sort of the University of North Carolina story. Everything was done wrong. I mean, I don't know anything about the University of North Carolina, but in this situation, the kids weren't required to wear masks. They slept in uh, barracks, barracks, cabins of uh, 20, 26 with the windows and doors closed. Yeah. Uh, so ventilation was a problem. And their big activities were singing and cheering, um, which are create, you know, massive amounts of, of, of virus in the air. At least they didn't have bars. Yeah, at least they didn't have bars, but they probably, you know. Uh, but the, it, looking at the timing, it looks to me and to some other people like the counselors gave it to all the kids. And this is not kid to kid transmission. This is adult to kid transmission. Oh. And in fact, in, in China and all the models about going back to school, the Chinese models, it's always the teacher that brings the virus into the classroom. So, you know, that's how they're thinking about it. And so the, at, at least very frequent testing of teachers might be, yeah, uh, yeah, might yeah. be part of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. The state has it down for every two months, which I'm not sure what good that's going to do. Yeah, yeah. So flu. So it's now almost late August. I guess it is officially late August. Um, Tell us about flu, remind us about the flu season. Um, what about flu vaccine? What, when do we find out whether this year's version is gonna be effective? And then how do we bring this into the COVID era? Sure. Well, I think I'm gonna answer the second to the last question first. When do we find out that this is effective? About two years from now, when <laughs> we get the studies done. So, you know, don't hold your breath on that one. Right. Um, Interestingly, what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere, which is the harbinger of what's gonna happen in the Northern Hemisphere, is that there, it's been a very light flu season. And it's unclear whether it's the strains or whether it's everybody walking around with masks on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the thought is it's really everybody walking around with masks on. And this grand rounds I did today for all the pediatricians in the kind of Stanford orbit, I, uh, I asked them the question, are you seeing respiratory infections this summer? And they said almost none, right? Because they could because of social distancing and, and sheltering and mask wearing, it's the transmission rates of all the respiratory viruses are, are low. So we may get some, we may get something from that. Great. Having said that, however, you know, everybody should get flu shots. We don't want to have the um, you know, given the performance of, of wearing masks across much of the country. Um, uh, we don't want to have the uh, ICU beds. We don't want to have ICU beds being used up with people, used up by people with a preventable disease. Now, admittedly, influenza vaccine is not that great. It, you know, we get maybe 35 to 50 percent uh, vaccine efficacy, but still, that's half the number of people who could be in the ICU beds, and you may actually get uh, less severe strains if you get vaccinated. So it's. You know, that's kind of the, so the good news is, is that it seems to be a very mild season in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, the bad news is we have nothing, no idea about, because of that, we don't have a lot of data on strains. Right, right. Uh, I mean, we do, but, it, you know, it's, but it's, it seems to be more uh, behavioral than, uh, than strain dependent. But get your flu shot anyway, for those of you in TV land. So, um, the, the, uh, going back to the epidemic itself for a bit, it's, it, it looks as though um, death rates might be dropping some. Is that just a function of when the virus spreads most rapidly through a community um, and the delay from that uh, to death? What, what's your take on that? I, I, could, I could give you three different thoughts on this. 
The first is the first and the easiest one thing to say is that this is just lagging three to four weeks and you just haven't seen it yet. Um, and then there's some evidence for that, but the, it's still the rates don't seem that high. The second thing is, is that the majority of people who are being diagnosed are in between 20 and 49 years old. And as we all know, they're not as likely to develop severe disease and not as likely to die, although they do, um, as older people. Um, what, uh, uh, and the third thing is, is that we've gotten somewhat better, and I will defer to my ICU colleagues to talk to you about how, that, how we've gotten better, but through uh, remdesivir and um, for early infection, dexamethasone, um, prone, uh, prone, uh, mm -hmm. uh, proning, uh, proning for, uh, for oxygenation. You know, even, even if you don't, even if you, you know, want to cross off um, uh, immune, immune plasma therapy as a, as, a, as a viable option, which it sounds like the NIH was hanging crepe about that yesterday. Um, it doesn't, you know, I think we have enough, um, enough tricks that we can re reduce mortality. And I, I know at UCSF, the, I, I have heard that the that ICU mortality has fallen to about 10%. You know, and early on in New York, it was 80% plus, you know, Italy and stuff was 80%. Now, some of that was picking off, picking off the oldest people where they're going to be the frailest and, and right. the least likely to, to um, you know, to, to mount a quick recovery. But still, it's, I think it's, you know, I think it's encouraging. I think these are somewhat real, uh, real phenomena. The other thing to realize, though, this is a great graph that it showed case rates by age groups in Florida and in some number of counties in Florida. And you can see the 20 to 29 year olds and the 30 to 39 year olds go up and despite all the orders and trying to hold it in place. But the 70 to 79 year olds didn't go like this. They went up in parallel with them. So that means that for whatever reason, there's um, back and forth between the um, uh, younger, uh, younger people and older people and that you're not really getting a free pass for the older people. We're not doing that good a job, at least in Florida, separating them, them out from the, uh, the trends among younger people. So you mentioned it just now. Sorry. Hello, dog. Last time we talked, George, it was my cats that were causing trouble. But <laughs> um, it, the, this idea of uh, post-recovery um, uh, serum um, collection as a treatment um, yeah. and and I saw that as well that the FDA decided not to extend the EUA for uh, for that yeah. um, you want to talk yeah. about it I know you're not really primarily treating but yeah no I'm not I'm not in the midst of all that I mean I think they're probably less compelling data than than uh, than we think about uh, than we think there has uh, than there has been um, you know I mean we immune serum therapy has been around since the 1930s right and, you know, it was somewhat, I mean, I hate to say anything was a mainstay of Ebola treatment, but it was a mainstay of Ebola treatment. And, you know, it's just a question of what antibody, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. And, you know, but you can be more elegant than just infusing large amounts of, 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 of serum and, and, you know, have monoclonal antibody species that uh, are really specifically targeted to what we're trying to, uh, trying to control. And, but the people who get it, we're, we're trying not to, it's not necessarily viral replication we're trying to control. It's, you know, cytokine storm and immune system overload and that kind of, you know, that, that sort of, the, the really you know, you know patho pathologic progression. So here's a question I'm, I'm sure that uh, everyone uh, will, will want to toss around with you. Um, let's talk about masks. Um, there's been uh so much, I, you know, I, I hate to think how much we've learned, at least I have, about masks. Uh, when this started, my son, who's an engineer, gave me these N95 masks with a valve in the front. And Yeah, perfect. Yeah, good thinking. And, yeah, well, but for construction, I think it probably is good. But, uh, yeah, it's we, great for we, construction. We learned that that's they're not also, good. They're also great for coccidioid and mycosis, by the way. Right. <laughs> so t talk, about, talk about masks. I mean, we've heard back and forth, I think, just in the past week, we've heard know that the you know the gauze yeah. things make it worse or don't work or help me yeah, yeah 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 so masks are important masks are hugely important and masks are important for three reasons three okay the first is that they um 
uh, if you're infected, and remember that 65% of people who are infected have no symptoms, and I'm adding the people who are asymptomatic plus the people who are pre-symptomatic together. So two-thirds of the people with this infection walking around and presumably at their most infectious stages have no symptoms. Okay, so that's why we want source control. Um, that's the industrial hygiene term. You know, it, it may, yeah. Basically, you're going to keep it in. The second thing is it provides some protection for you. Now, it's not perfect protection because you still have your ocular, you have a conjunctiva exposed. Um, and, you know, while I pretend that wearing glasses is going to protect me, you know, I realize they need to have the side things on and have safety glasses and stuff. Um, we, we've gone to that for patient care here at UCSF. But it provides some substantial amount of protection for you. And the third thing is, and I credit Monica Gandhi with this idea, is that if you're, um, if you get infected, because people are wearing masks, the inoculum is going to be much lower than it would have been otherwise. And so you're much more likely to get a, uh, an asymptomatic case. And because people with asymptomatic infection develop antibody at the same rate as people with symptomatic infection, she refers it to it as variolation, which was a, an early you know, smallpox prevention um, technique that preceded vaccination, where basically we're giving people mild mild disease with small inocula uh, of, the, of the actual uh, organism. So I, I think that's a third reason. Now, as, to, as uh, to what kinds of masks to wear, any kind of mask is okay. Just don't wear it under your nose. And for God's sakes, don't right. wear it under your chin. Um, and I mean, and I'll, I'll say this as a pediatrician, it's a suffocation risk for children under two. So don't screw around and try and get some two-year-old to wear this. I have a picture of my granddaughter with a two-year-old mask on trying to pull it off and it looks like she's going to amputate, you know, both her external ears. Right. You know, so that would be bad. Be sewing those back on all night long. Um, the, uh, there was a study done at Duke. And by study, it's sort of like, I mean, without, with all respect to the investigators, it had kind of a high school science fair feel to it, where they're taking, you know, side shots with, with right. scattered light and stuff with a cell phone camera, I might add, for all these different kinds of masks with, you know, ends ranging between one and four. Um, and basically the N95s were great. You can't have the exhaust valve, right? That's absolutely off, right? The N95s were great, but N95s have to be fit tested. So you can't have a beard. You can't have, you know, you can't have the kind of Miami Vice stubble, you know, all that stuff, right? Um, the, the surgical masks were fine. The cloth masks that people wear around work fine. What they didn't like as much were bandanas, you know, the sort of bank robber look, and then the gaiters that got pulled up. Um, these were ends of one in the study from which this huge, you know, media storm uh, ensued. And uh, I think that there's, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't view that as, I mean, it's, it's the typical thing, right? It's you get, and I'm going to start sounding like I'm beating on engineers like your son. You get a <laughs> bunch of engineers together who, who like to talk about fluid dynamics and aerosol particles. And they say, oh, this leaks, therefore, this can cause infection. Okay, so then you say, okay, well, what's the infectious dose? How many, how many viral particles are there per droplet? Right. Now, they don't have any idea. Maybe it's just because they can see droplets, they think, oh, yeah, well, this is, you know, cause and effect. So this is kind of in that category. And, I mean, it may, be, it may well turn out that gaiters and different kinds of materials don't filter as well. But as long as it's, it's two-ply, I think you get, I think you get plenty of protection. Super. <clears throat> so we're running up to the time when we're, we're going to invite the audience to participate more, but I want to, uh, um, another topic that I really want to talk about a little bit is contact tracing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, it, I think we know that it probably can work um, or can help, um, but is it really feasible when you get, these big explosive epidemics, um, Florida or yeah, no, and, and, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's totally scalable. You just have to have enough people trained when it when it needs to be scaled. And I think San Francisco, we've trained a ton of people here, like hundreds, to to do this. Um, the usual at San Francisco Department of Public Health, they usually carry ten people to do contact tracing for all the STDs and tuberculosis. 
So we've moved from 10 to maybe 250 people trained, something like that. And basically have a workforce, sort of a standing an FTE workforce of about 120 people uh, to, to find all the cases and, and, and do it. And, and so it's, it is scalable, but you have to have the substrate to start with. You, know, you have to have people who are trained and ready to go. Um, we, um, uh, I think it's been pretty successful here in San Francisco. We get to you know, 70 plus percent of the, of the contacts within a day of them being named. Uh, we've put a lot of people, we've gotten a lot of people into isolation. But, you know, I mean, the whole point of testing, the whole point of contact tracing, the whole point of case investigations, the whole point of all this stuff is to find people who are infectious, take them out of circulation and put them into isolation. If you can't put them into isolation, there's no point in doing this. It's a waste of money. Um, and the, the problem is, is that the people we're dealing with who are most likely to get infected live day to day, you know, live from paycheck to paycheck. And I'm not talking weekly, I'm talking getting paid in cash daily yeah. on construction sites, on, you know, for farm work, for whatever. Um, they don't necessarily have um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of cash on hand. They're not living in places that are conducive to isolation because they're sharing rooms. Yeah. So we have to have a cash, we have to be able to have income maintenance. We have to be able to provide social services for them, meaning like food and uh, whatever. They have to be able to go to a place where they can isolate. Somebody has to be checking up on them. And somebody probably has to be providing uh, like food vouchers or something to their families. And then last of all, they need to have some guarantee if they're truly employed, if they're formally employed, that they'll get their job back when they go back. I mean, these are understand that a lot of people we're finding through contact tracing that we're trying to isolate are asymptomatic. Okay, if you're in the ICU on a blower, that's okay, that's an easy one. It's a 25-year-old with a, with a wife and two kids who, you know, makes uh, $80 a day and has to pay rent in San Francisco and has to put food on the table. That's the sort of, and has no symptoms at all. That's the sort of person that's going to be tough to talk into to going into isolation, unless we remove the disincentive. So, I mean, it, everybody likes to focus on contact tracing and testing, but the reason we do those is to, for isolation. And I, I, you know, I'm trying to get everybody to talk more about isolation right. and less about the other stuff. So um, we have a, a bunch of questions. Um, I'm, I'm betting we're not going to get to a lot of them, but we'll we'll try. So. <laughs> Couple questions about about uh, flu. Um, um, when's the best time? Uh, do it right away. Do you, you kind of do you wait a while? Um, and um, and that was from Chicago. Um, and then the, another question about the flu is that um, the question is that it seems to the person that people at risk for severe flu are at least likely to benefit from a flu vaccine. Is that uh, do you want to talk about flu a little bit? Well, I mean, so yeah, so um, um, the best time to get the flu vaccine is as soon as it becomes available. Uh, you want as much protection as possible. Um, as for people who are at greatest risk having the um, uh, having uh, the having the most difficulty with the immunization, I think that may be true. I mean, that's why we we do double dosing for people over sixty five. I don't know if you had to wait. I had to wait around UCSF uh, to get to for them to get the uh, get the higher dose vaccine um, this last year, and which I thought was ridiculous. I mean, you know, the workforce where we work is not it's not as young as we once were, right, Paul? Um, I work I, I work at the VA, so uh, <laughs> they have a lot of high dose vaccine around, <laughs> given the patient population. Well, I was getting it in the children's hospital. Okay, okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. All right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, when vaccines, uh, vaccine dosing and, and vaccine strain selection is, a, is an art, much more than a science. And there's a lot of guesswork that goes on because uh, it has a long production uh, lead time. Um, and so we're having to make choices in April about what's going to go into production. And some of that's based on what's going on in the Southern Hemisphere. A lot of it's based on where we were at the end of the uh, flu season in the Northern Hemisphere. But I think my basic advice is to get it as soon as it's available. Great. So here's a, a question. And don't give your children and don't give your children aspirin if they get the if they get it. Yeah, right. Remember, remember that. Rise, rise syndrome. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, uh, this is a, about a patient, um, uh, and the, the question is that the patient had um, symptoms um, in March, but didn't uh, wasn't didn't come in for care at, at that point. Now comes in feeling feeling well, uh, but uh, had COVID uh, antibody testing is IgG negative, IgM is positive. What what's going on? Does the person have active infection or what? Yeah, you know, they may have gotten recently. I would have guessed that they gotten recently infected. It's going to have to be repeated. I would, I would suspect that's an error more than anything else. Um, and and as far as people, this is my wife every day. You know, when are you going to get me an antibody test? I know I I had this in in yeah. in, in January in February. I can't smell anything. You know, blah 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 blah. So, so go call Kaiser and go get it. Well, no, you have to do it. So right. you know, it's you're going to see a lot of people. We had a bad influenza season last year. You're going to see a lot of people who had influenza, had severe influenza, and were sicker than they than they're used to getting. We're going to say they had COVID. So just the fact that they say they had it doesn't mean they had it, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not a particularly specific diagnostic tool. Um, and you know, I mean, then we'll see the antibody. Now, one of the things is is how fast does antibody wane, right? And Antibody for all diseases wanes quickly after you even you're talking about measles, you know, it goes up, it goes down. That's what it's supposed to do. Um, but, you know, whether you can, how long out you can measure it is a very much of an open question right now for the alpha coronaviruses. It's sort of on the order of four months. Um, so you could potentially see somebody, I mean, here's another explanation for this. You could potentially see somebody who had waning immunity uh, who had true disease, developed antibody, antibody wanes, they come into contact with someone with the disease in the community, and they have an amnestic response that's characterized initially by IgM and then later by IgG. Remember, one of the things about, about in the immunology of this is that people are getting continuously reboosted because of the people they come into contact with who are infected. Right. So, um... That was an AC diagnosis. I like that. Yeah. So um, question about, I'm, I'm going to broaden this question, but says, uh, why did we only uh, get re uh, recommendations from the CDC regarding face shields for, for PPE recently and not earlier? And maybe just without getting too political, um, talk about the CDC and, and what's what's been happening. Yeah. Uh, so well, with regard to face shields, yeah, because that's sure, with, uh, with regard to face shields, um, you know, we've had them since very early on in the epidemic, used mostly for hospital infection control. Um, you know, that's uh, when you do NP swabs, you're supposed to have a face shield, for instance. So, um, I, I think this is the teachers that have, have pushed this uh, as a as an issue. Uh, it doesn't hurt to have face shields. It's probably better to have safety glasses than face shields. Um, but you still you know, need a mask. Hard. You still need a mask. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's not a substitution. Yeah. Um, so CDC. So CDC, and you know, I I've worked for CDC for years and with CDC for years, and you know, and I know the zip code and you know everything right off the top of my head and the and the uh, you know the main information number off the top of my head. But CDC likes to control things, right? And remember that. In the United States, public health is a function is a is a duty of the states, not of the federal government. The federal government's remit for public health is to control disease at the borders. Um, and the actual law used to say, when Paul and I got into this for HIV in the 80s, the law at that point in time said loathsome and contagious diseases as the, the ones yeah. they were trying to keep out. Right? So those things like tonsorans and other like, big big time pathogens like that. Um, the uh, so CDC likes to control things, right? And I think they had a misread, a basic misreading on how many cases there would be. And they thought there would be tens of cases in the United States, maybe 100. And so they yeah, were going to SARS, SARS 1 kind of person. SARS 1 kind of thing. And they're going to control the diagnostic agents so they would know where every single case was and they were going to run all the tests so they could figure everything out. That lasted about a week before they, that was became that that was shown to be absurd, an absurd premise. But meanwhile, they hadn't produced enough uh, test kits, 
FDA threatened to shut down their laboratories, you know, in a real spate of uh, internecine warfare. And it's just, it's, they've never really recovered from it. Uh, plus the administration doesn't help them out. Um, the White House task force sort of continuously undermines them, I think, which has, it's a lot about old, old time payback uh, for a variety of things. And they just haven't recovered. And, and, you know, even if you go to the website today, I can tell you, they don't have the age, you know, you can't figure out the age distribution of the patients with reported COVID-19. They put that out in MMWR. They suppress a lot of, they don't suppress it. They just don't present it. Um, and it's really been left up to the states to do this, which I think is okay. Although it's, you know, it's sometimes you're going to have to have federal assistance for, for stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it hasn't been the, the finest hour, even though that's what the, what the centers were built for in, in the 1940s. George, a couple questions um, about um, what you'd mentioned that it might, you'd mentioned Monica Gandhi, that it might be the inoculum size that would lead yeah. to a more likelihood of more symptomatic disease. Is that right. pretty well established? Are there have been, there have been studies and talk about that? It's, it's supposition. I mean, it's well established for other diseases. Um, but it's, it's, it's supposition at this point in time. But I think it's probably not inaccurate. I mean, you know, the kind of the gross observation is that disease is getting, did I say this? That disease is getting less severe. Um, and we're getting fewer people in the hospitals and fewer ICUs and fewer deaths. And that would be consistent with, with lower inocula leading to less severe disease. Um, you know, in the old days, these were done with prisoner, by prisoner experiments. Right. So if these guys want to get their way, who want to be challenged for the vaccine, we'll be able to answer the question because we can we can adjust the dose. Yeah. yeah. Adjust the dose in the, in the placebo arm. Right. And yeah. we'll get an answer. Uh, but no one's proposing that, even though I guess Dr. Fauci said it was plan D uh, as in dog. Uh, <laughs> Got it. Um, a question about uh, vaccine development, um, yeah. given the, the intense pressure to, on you know, one government versus another, one company versus another, everyone's going at warp speed. Um, yeah. Are, is there a risk here? And uh, what, what, what are your concerns about safety of, of vaccines? Well, I mean, it has to be, safety of vaccines is always something that has to be balanced. With the with the need, and you know, there's a this is an expanding epidemic. There's tremendous need, and um, I, I mean, I think when Francis Collins talks about this, Dr. Collins, he talks about not cutting biological corners, but just cutting it, you know, sort of administrative, you know, company profit corners. Uh, and um, you know, I mean, if you believe that, which I think is probably believable. Um, then we should have relatively safe products available. Now, the fact, I'm, I'm worried though that we'll have a DSMB that'll stop the trial early because you're gonna get a big difference, right? And we're gonna end up with 5,000 person years of observation. And then we're gonna start vaccinating 330 million people. And um, we're gonna find, start finding side effects that occur one in 50,000, one in 100,000 you know, th those sorts of things. And they're gonna be very difficult to, to, to figure out. Um, there are two vaccines in routine use now, um, not in the United States. One is the, uh, uh, one is a, a, a Canadian Chinese vaccine, CanSino, um, that's being given to the People's Liberation Army. Um, so that's, and, you know, who knows whether those data will be published about side effects. And the other is this Russian vaccine. Um, I was asked the other day what I, if uh, if Putin were here and offered, if President Putin were here and offered me a dose, I'd say, "Well, you get it first, pal." You know? <laughs> he says his daughter got it already, but I'm not sure. But not him. Here's a, a kind of an interesting question um, uh, for routine COVID care: uh, How much PPE is really needed? Um, the questioner uh, says that she'd rather have an N95 than a gown. Um, is the, yeah. Do we know kind of, we don't worry so much about surfaces anymore as is all of the PPE really needed? Uh, well, we don't know. worry about, we don't worry about services as much anymore, not because the virus has changed, but because our understanding 
of it has changed in the observed transmission. And we can see kind of transmission patterns. Um, I, I would think, yeah, I mean, I think if somebody's acutely ill and they're at a highly infectious stage, you need as much, you know, and, and you're going to be instrumenting their lungs uh, below the level of the larynx, you need everything you can get. Um, uh, you know, for if you have somebody who's staying in the basement, like Chris Cuomo, where they yeah. threw the food down the floor, down the stairs every night for, for dinner, um, you know, you probably don't have to go to extraordinary lengths. But, uh, you know, I agree with you. I'd much rather have N95 and safety goggles or, or safety glasses uh, than a gown if I had to, if those were the choices. Hopefully we won't have to make those choices. But, you know, it's, you know, you, there, there certainly is a theoretical possibility of fomite transmission. It just hasn't been observed very frequently. A question about air filtration systems, ventilation, yeah. um, comment on that. I've also heard questions about UV light. Um, um, UV light is great, right? <laughs> well, not not in your body, but <laughs> well, I mean, saying, you know, yeah, yeah, that's not a good idea. I mean, people say, well, can children use playgrounds? And I think, yeah, metal surfaces that are being doused in UV light in the middle of the summertime—it's probably pretty safe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so air conditioners, ASHRAE. This may not uh, an, an organization that may not trip off your tongue, but the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers has just issued new standards about air exchanges and about ventilation uh, and about uh, uh, filters for, uh, for air conditionings in, for air conditioners in places where there are a lot of people. Uh, I, I think that's, you know, what we're trying to deal with here are aerosols, which right. are relatively less important uh, mode of transmission, but, it's, it's, but they do occur. Uh, and I think that those standards are, are the standards to follow. Basically, you want to amp up the air exchanges and have six air exchanges in a room per hour at least. And you want to be, and if you have some clunky old air conditioner, that's that you're, you know, you may not want that. But if you have a fancy air conditioning system, you want to have the highest grade filter. Um, you know, the, the, the ASHRAE takes, courtesy of Legionnaire's disease, ASHRAE takes these ventilation standards very uh, very seriously, and the and the uh, and risk of transmission very seriously. Great, um, I, you know. Again, I I know George. It's probably not fair because you don't do a lot of direct patient care of these patients, but we all hear the stories. What about the late effects? People that yeah, seem yeah. to have very prolonged illnesses. Yeah. yeah, there's somebody that we know who was in the New York Times with an with an uh, article about how yeah. how she had late late effects. I mean, it's you know, if we had any disease and we started to follow it as closely as this, I suspect we'd be seeing some, these kinds of effects sort of over the longer run. We know that for the 1918 influenza, there's a whole school of thought that um, that may be the cause of, uh, of the epidemic of Parkinson's disease that started in the 1950s as real late disease. But, you know, clearly people don't snap back from this. And what it made me think of, Paul, was uh, people who've had Guillain-Barre syndrome, speaking right. of vaccines, and they say, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. You know, this isn't polio. You'll come right back. And, you know, a year later, they can still barely walk, and they can't really read very well. And, you know, it's like it takes a long time to come back from some diseases, and I think this might be uh, one of them, at least for some subset of people. So we're getting close to the, to the time. I still have a, a number of questions, but... Um, the questioner is about riding a bus. Is that safe? Um, and if you um, should you wear a mask or gown? Yes, of course you wear a mask. Um, okay, you should always wear a mask. Let's yeah, let's go yeah. there. Let's go there first. I think. I mean, as long as you can maintain some social distance, I think it's fine. You don't want to be on. You know, like jammed into the sub Tokyo subway cars. Right. Probably not a good idea. Um, we actually worry a lot about buses, but it, in terms of taking agricultural workers out into the field. Uh, and we think that that might be a, one of the big sources of transmission uh, among agricultural workers that we're now seeing up and down the, the Central Valley. Uh, so um, I think if you're talking about city buses, that's fine. Uh, just wear a mask and make sure that you can, you know, make sure everybody else is afraid to get on and so you don't have to sit next to anybody. Right. Um, and if people are on the bus not wearing masks, call Uber. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, or Lyft, or Lyft, or Lyft, Lyft, or rideshare uh, application. It is, it is the uh, top of the hour, George. It's been a great discussion. I think, uh, judging from the comments from the from the people, we have a lot of questions still. But um, this has been fantastic. The field changes so damn fast; it's just amazing. Um, but um, I'll be nice to you, and we'll invite you back. Maybe Thanks, I'll Paul. Give you a beer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Um, and just a reminder that um, uh, you can you can find out more about activities like this, all the different things that the International Antiviral Society USA uh, produces. The website you see the uh, URL there. If you have comments about uh, the dialogue series, uh, email us. We'd love to hear uh, comments, and um, it'll be available uh, as a podcast uh, after the live. Uh, broadcast is over um, but we we welcome your input and George thanks uh, so much for joining us today really do appreciate it always a pleasure take care yep bye-bye bye-bye